I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norton and I'm joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. And Callum Petch. Hello. As we have a look at the last week or so in film, including new release reviews of Kingsman and Big Hero 6. Uh, up first, though, is the quiz. Um, Owen, how is that looking so far? It's, um, was it 1-0 to me now? Was it, no, 2-0, isn't it? I believe it's just one. Is it? No, I was trying to sneak another one in. Yeah, it's one nil. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and, and I did watch I Frankenstein. I Frankenstein? Yeah, what did you think? Oh, I Frankenstein. <laughs> oh, God's sake. I, I know what I'm going to make you watch now. Oh, God. Oh. Okay. Right. I tried with this quiz <laughs> when I won it the last time to, to make it about making us watch good films or interesting films. I really tried. And everyone acknowledged that. And then everyone went back to picking awful, awful films to make everyone suffer through. So when I win next, I know exactly what I'm making you watch. Oh, no. And you're going to hate me. And you're going to hate it. And I'm going to laugh a lot. <laughs> I, Frankenstein, was just abysmal. It, it is a disgrace and an insult to filmmaking. Um, and Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and his monster. Um, and everything that was ever involved in making this should be ashamed of themselves. I continue to be glad that I have not seen this film. Uh, it is. It was my worst film of last year. It was horrendous. But you know what, Steve? <laughs> was it really worse than this Vendetilla's T! Exclamation Mark 3? I didn't watch that. I didn't watch that. So I don't watch everything that I think is going to be shit. But I thought <laughs> Frankenstein, I Frankenstein, might be a bit crap. But, you know, it's got uh, Aaron Eckhart in it. I quite like Jay Courtney. I thought it'd be, it'd be a decentish fantasy action film, and it's not. It really is no, really appalling. It isn't. It, it, I don't know what it's doing. There's, there's no plot. and Stuff just doesn't make sense in it. Like, the fact is that it... the gargoyles are, you know, you're meant to hide, you're not meant to be seen in the public, and it's a big taboo to be out in the open. And then they suddenly just have, like, street fights and stuff. It's bizarre. Um, and, it, and isn't one of them, isn't someone meant to be Caligula or something uh, as well? Yeah. But, I, I just, I, I lost We never get told about that. And, <laughs> oh, 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 Ivan Stravsky. Yeah. I think I'm right in saying it was one of the highest grossing Australian films ever. And they probably bombed in America. Mm. It did. But it was quite a patriotic thing, I think, to have this big film, which turned out to be bollocks. You mean like American Sniper? 
yeah, I would never have thought to compare the two, but... Uh, no, yeah. I mean, in terms, of, uh, in terms of film patriotic, where people go and see it's like I know it's a crap. Yeah. Well, I kind of disagree that American Psycho Sniper was utter crap, as particularly not in the same way I Frankenstein is. I mean, well, no, fair. okay, in fairness, from what I've heard, I Frankenstein, that's legitimately awful film. So. <laughs> yeah. But you know what, Steve? People don't want to listen to us review nice films, I don't think, in this bit. I think pick it, we should continue to pick terrible films for each other. Oh, oh just, just you wait. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, like, if you lose, I feel like there needs to be a forfeit punishment. Like, exactly. if you lose, you don't get rewarded for being so failing there. Otherwise, <laughs> I don't want to fail. I suppose there is that, but yeah, if Owen loses... We can start the, the bad films again from the next one, you know. Ne- this time is fine. It doesn't matter about this one. You can give me a nice film. I'm I, feel like we, no, I'm... I feel like what you need to do, Steve, here is to just like help lead me on here so that I can beat Owen. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that sort of um, yeah leads you on to the quiz, I suppose. What uh, you, I presume you've got someone ready, and it's not like me kicking one at the last minute. <laughs> no, I've always I'm always prepared. You're prepared. Okay. Yes, I was born prepared. <laughs> Uh, so this long silence. Yeah, so that frank, that frantic clicking I can hear. Yeah, it was me trying to get the tab open. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, uh, in 1999, this person was a film called The Trench. Uh, I'm not sure I've even heard of that one. Uh, in 2001, they're in Mean Machine. Okay. No, okay. Uh, in 2005, they're in The Business. This is a real person, is it? This isn't a made-up fiction. No, this, this is a real-life human being, man. I want to say Ray Winston for some reason, but... No, it's not Ray Winston. No. Uh, in 2006, they're in Severance. Oh, in, is it Danny Dyer? Danny Dyer. Yes, Owen, it is is, uh, EastEnders' own Landlord of the Queen Vic, Danny Dyer, who revealed on Jonathan Ross's chat show this week he has auditioned three times for Game of Thrones. (laughs) Wow. And has has not got a part, Um, which is a shame in some ways. Kind of. (laughs) He's going to abandon extra. (laughs) One of those ones just gets a head locked off there. I just, I just think that um, some aggressive Mockney wannabe football hooligan <laughs> with a with a with a strong Cockney accent would would add a lot to Game of Thrones. It's one thing it's missing, really. <laughs> yeah, just have just have a firm turn up halfway through the halfway through <laughs> an episode and, and and run riot through through the kingdom. Um, some sequence in which you beat somebody to death whilst fairy tale New York plays in the background. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I think that puts me in now two the lap, yeah. and me one step closer to watching some epic shows. <laughs> yeah, and saving me from whatever it was you were just threatened me with. Oh, you. Anyway, uh, on to the news now, um, and Sundance Film Festival have um, announced some winners, haven't they, Owen? Yeah, there was a couple of prizes that, you know, we don't have to go over the whole thing, mainly because none of us were at Sundance, so we're just going off secondary evidence here. We, we, we will go if they invite us. 
they, yeah, can they cover my time off work as well, please? Then we're all square, that's fine. Um, as long as they can pay for my flights and whatever, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If, if they let us go, we'll go. Or, or alternative, alternatively, anyone who's at Sundance next year wants to review it for Foul Critics, you're more than welcome to. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen either. They're like proper professional paid critics who do this for their job and we're just... Well, if James, if James starts paying us, we could put it down on expenses. Oh, that would be the ideal. But, um, he'd probably put us down on like a coach trip there or something, which would take. Yeah. But so, anyway, yeah, so the, the, the Sundance Film Festival wrapped on, uh, Sunday, I believe. And, uh, yeah, so the, the, the grand jury prize is the sort of most prestigious award, um, that goes to films at Sundance Film Festival. And, uh, a film called Me and Earl and the Dying Girl won. Um, in the US dramatic category. Callum, I know you've just had a quick glance at it as well, <laughs> like me, and, I mean, what's your initial thoughts on me and the girl, me and Earl and the dying girl from its description and cast? This just sounds like an indie version of Bolting Our Stars with Nick Hoffman in there somewhere. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah. Not, not, that, not that I object to Nick Hoffman and things, mind you, of mm. course, but just, yeah. Then again, I don't even know why I'm like this, because I actually kind of enjoyed Bolton Our Stars, so. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, the plot, just from IMDb, the very short synopsis there, a teenage filmmaker befriends a classmate with cancer. Um, I mean, no, it's stage a... four leukemia. Oh, is that right? That's, that's the difference there. We've got to be technical here. Not, uh, not just your average everyday cancer. No, okay. I'm my just God, reading... I'm, skir- I'm skirting so many insensitivity lines right now. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, I can't really get myself excited for it. I think Whiplash did quite well at Sundance last year, opened the festival, won a prize, and mm. was fantastic. But dying, uh, this, this film, I don't know, can't get excited about it, even given the fact it's had almost unanimous praise so far. But, uh, it also had a standing ovation, but in fairness, pretty much everything gets a standing ovation, so. Yeah. I mean, except for Jupiter Ascending. Which has apparently been not received very well at all, to put it like Well, that. in fairness, it's being shown at Sundance. Yeah. And it's a big, loud, exciting yeah, studio movie. But also, on the other hand, it, you know, was the first screening a week before release. Mm-hmm. Neither director turned up, no stars turned up, and critics were actively barred from going in. None of this is, is helping me here. I, I want it to be good. Please be good. Please be good. Please be good. That's all I want. I can't. I'm really sorry, Callum. I don't think it's going to be good. But I know, I don't think it is either, but wouldn't it be something? Yeah. Wouldn't it be something to walk in there and literally just get Speed Vater 2? Wouldn't that be something? Well, yes, it would be. I mean, that's Speed Racer 2 levels of quality would be more than I am expecting from Jupiter Ascended. <laughs> yeah. But, you yeah, know, there so- must be a shot Speed Racer there. Uh, no, I, quite, I think I reviewed Speed Racer on the podcast years ago. And said that I quite liked it. So there you go. Ah. Yeah. Um, that's one for, for archive divers to go search for. <laughs> precisely. Uh, and, you know, we've got four of our critics for liking and praising uh, the Vakowskis because I liked Clade Atlas. James definitely liked Clade Atlas. It was really highly rated here. And Matrix was only mentioned even last week, you know. So... <laughs> Yeah, it, that still gets talked about even now, and um, you know what? Are we sixteen years on from the Matrix, so yeah, you know we've got form for for liking them. I just 
have no expectations for, for their next film. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't really know what else to say about the Sundance Film Festival. Like I say, we weren't there. All I'm reading is just what views have come out of it, and they're always a bit hit and miss anyway. So mm-hmm. I think we'll move on to the other awards that you're a bit more excited about, Callum. Uh, yes, the 42nd Annie Awards, which is the industry, the animation industry's annual get-together to celebrate the best in animation across television and film. Um, in the film categories, specifically, um, only two films actually wandered away with more than one award. Um, those being the Bocatores, which took home two awards, one for Best Production Design and Best Voice Performance in a Feature by Ben Kingsley as Archibald Snatcher. And... How to Train a Dragon 2, which Clean House was six of its um, ten nominations, winning wow. for Best Direction for Dean DeVoe, Best Score, and Best Animated Feature. Um, it's going over at the Oscars, folks. You're, I mean, it was going to go over the Oscars anyway since those nominations were announced. But, mm-hmm. um, but um, very, like, probably, I actually, I'm, whilst I disagree with How to Train a Dragon winning Best Feature, as well, I can't really disagree with a lot of um, other part, like most of the other because they spread out these awards very nicely. Like Big Hero 6 took home Outstanding Animated Effects and Animated Production. Um, the Book of Life took home Best Character Designs, and it really should have. It's gorgeous. <laughs> um, and, and the Lego Movie won its one award for Outstanding Achievement in Writing as well. And in fairness, that is an amazing script right there. Um, yeah. There, there we go, that's that. Um, I would also sit here and also just quickly take time to know that Gravity Falls won the best TV broadcast production for a children's audience. It beat um, Over, Over God, God of War. Yeah, yes. I was surprised about that. I haven't watched that yet, but um, it's sat there ready to go. Um, it also beat Legend of Korra, which yeah. was on fire this past year, as anybody who's followed my Twitter and seen me go completely insane would know. Um, and The Simpsons won best general audience animated TV show. Because has that been good this season? Well, it's not been it's not been good for twenty seasons. Okay. Oh, um, or oh, well, you 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 cut off at season five, do you, Steve? <laughs> it, it, I thought it had been going on longer than that. It feels like it. <laughs> Did well, you watch one of the ep- the crossover episode recently? Was that this? The Family Guy. Yeah. The Family Guy episode. Yeah, I I did watch that, and it was just. Oh. I didn't because I like because I have some semblance of self respect. So. <laughs> I, I watched it because I'm a critic and was trying to do my job. <laughs> 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 but no, it was it, 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 not missing much. It's yeah. it's it's woeful. Yeah, uh, I think I think I laughed once and I can't remember what it was about. Yeah, um, and oh, also Feast won Best Animated Short Subject, which is the short film before Big Hero Six, mm. which we'll get on to later. But um, yeah, I have. Little complaints about these awards, actually, and that. Also, when it stacks up like this, it reminds me of the good films from last year, animated films from last year, are actually really good as well. Which is, you know, better than my initial assessment of, like, last year was miserable animation. So, um, yeah, that's that. Again, disappointing not to see the Lego movie take home Best Animated Feature, or more than one award, but, you know, it's all close quick there, and one of us are outsiders, and also, a film about Lego! No, that's commercialist. Sensationalism. No, no, we can't nom- we can't nominate that. You laugh. That's probably what the actual thought yeah. process is there. The exact same reason it didn't get picked for the Oscars. Also probably because what? also because How to Train a Dragon didn't win in 2010. Toy Story 3 won, and many people believe it should have won in 2010. Mm-hmm. So it's due. It's due. 
basically. Um, but yeah, anyway, I have little thoughts around that. I'm more looking here, I'm more just now excited in the hopes of finally seeing the tale of Princess Kaguya at some point. Mm. Did, did the Annies actually give any indication of what's likely to win? At the Oscars. Uh, yeah, they, yeah, because uh, many people vote like because yeah, many people vote there are the same ones who vote for the Oscars. Like, you know, like I mean, I mean, it votes that way. And How to Train Dragon Two, going there, it will win. Like for example, um, last year Frozen won Best Animated Feature, and then um, went on to win at the Oscars. Uh, admittedly, Wreck It Ralph won at the 40th Annie Awards, but then went to Brave um, at the actual Oscars because Pixar. But um, then also in 2012, Rango won at the Annies and then won at the Oscars. Um, the only time, the only major time it changed was in 2011 when How to Train Dragon 1 took it at the Annies, but Toy Story 3 won at the Oscars because at the Annies, especially, most of its voting staff are DreamWorks employees. Ah, I see. Okay. Conveniently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, that, that's how it is. Um, again, How to Train Dragon, I called How to Train Dragon 2 winning from pretty much day one. Of those nominations being announced, and I hear this basically just confirms it. So, interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Excellent. Well, that is all for the news. We'll have a quick break, and then we'll be back with what we've been watching. What we've been watching there, will we take a look at some of the films we've seen in the last week that weren't new uh, releases? Callum, as you're back on the podcast, why don't you start us off in this section? Uh, yes, I was sent a screener, um, which team and producer for the last screen I got was one of those what the hell am I watching screens. <laughs> um, it's Lead Guards, a 2013 um, Luxembourg film, comedy, uh, translated to the Notorious Guys, coming out in the UK at some point in the near future, um, directed by Adolf LSL. I will not be reviewing it because, A, I don't have the time at the moment. And B, um, it's very, a lot of it's very much culturally Luxembourg, like for Luxembourg itself. And therefore I don't feel confident enough to comment on that because I'm not familiar enough with Luxembourg cinema and such. Yeah. In the same way that, um, I didn't review Bang Bang last year and that came out in cinemas because I'm not familiar enough with Bollywood and therefore don't feel like confident enough to sit there and state full on factual opinions about things about that particular Bollywood film yet. Um, yeah, in any case, this is a comedy. And I can't, I will at least tell you what I thought of it, and my thoughts were just, what the hell am I watching? <laughs> like, I, genu- I genuinely have no idea what this film is about, or meant to be, or what it's doing. It's just random nonsense. Um, shot, shot like a low-quality CBBC comedy. Um, like, it's nonsense, it just battles from scene to scene, with no rhyme or reason, it's cast. Of characters are ill-defined. One of its cast of characters starts off as a um, quiet, sensitive kind of like kind of guy who has a crush on a woman. And that. then, as soon as they get together, he suddenly turns into what a white man who has never he- actually heard of gangster rap, but except the name, thinks a gangster rapper looks like and talks like, and says things like, "Yo, well, you're my bitch. You're gonna do what I say." Um, only, only in French, obviously. <laughs> um, they're like, it's just nonsense and weird and awkward. Um, the sheep, the, the soundtrack to the video game Sheepdog and Wolf pops up at one point. For no reason whatsoever. But <laughs> uh, um, like, also, but the problem is that the end of the film tries to justify this nonsense as that, that having been the entire point. And like, to use a, a comparison, or at least a critical style comparison, that nobody in the history of will ever use before or again. Um, it's like Encore era Eminem. 
where he put out an album full of complete nonsense, of tracks of him just starting rubbish and ridiculous shit and having none of it make sense, none of it matter. But then, near the end of the song, he will call out the fact that what he's saying is nonsense and rubbish and shit. And therefore, it's per- meant to be perfectly fine, because he's aware of how rubbish it is. So therefore, it's satire and self-referential humour. But despite the fact that that doesn't make up the fact that we've had to sit through, not, like, four and a half minutes of just nonsense and rubbish and terribleness. Mm-hmm. The ending to this film tries to do that, as if it, like, justifies itself. And I'm like, okay, but now you've also just made the last 80 minutes completely pointless here. So, why? Why does this film exist? I don't get why this film exists here. It's just, it's like, it's like 80 straight minutes of, of bad family guy cutaway gags. Like, um, I, I don't know, maybe, I, again, I can't lay, lay down a definitive full-on review of it for, because, I don't know, maybe, because also some of the gags are very kind of, um, based on culture, for most of that, like, um, I think like the Stecker Brothers or something turn up at some point. I, I mean, make a big deal out of, oh, it's the Stecker Brothers, and they even have them sing a song and such about that, but, um, seeing as I have no idea who they are, and they're probably stars in the country map, and they just kind of flow over my head, so I don't know how much of it is specific to how, um, Luxembourg comedy goes. So, so I can't write a full on official view of that, but what I can say is just instead of just, I have no idea what the hell happened. <laughs> Did it make you laugh at anything? Was there anything that you found funny in it? There was one um, funny gag when two people, like when two people in a hotel room watching TV, they decide to have sex and it hands away from them to focus on the TV as it flips between channels, you know, like as if it's meaning, you know, like as if it's you know, trying to tell a narrative of what their sex is like. Then pans back about thirty seconds later to be the be, be other quick switching channels, so just because they keep hitting their foot on the on the um, remote to have sex. Okay, uh, like that's the one. Gag that I thought, oh, that's actually pretty clever. But the rest of it is just nonsense and weird. And also, its cast are supposed to be special needs um, people. And everybody hams it up with, like, in terms of borderline offensive portrayals. Oh, dear. And the film doesn't, and the film kind of veers too often into laughing at them instead of with them. And also, there's this weird continued undercurrent of transphobia going on there. Like, the first 90 seconds, I literally, I had a dream where I was chasing after a beautiful girl, but it turned out to be a man. Like, but it looked like a girl, but it was really a man. I came just repeating this for 90 straight seconds. I was like, uh, can, can we move on, please? Okay. Uh, like, it's, uh, but again, then at the end, it reveals it all, like, it reveals it all, oh, we're just purposely being stupid and over top and but I'm pushing that. But again, I don't, that doesn't justify it from that, so. Again, maybe maybe I need to be Luxembourgian to get a lot looks and make it worse now, apparently. <laughs> like from Luxembourg to get a lot of the humour here and that. But um for me playing for me that I no, I'm sorry, it's not a slice bit for me. Oh I was gonna say, is it a film that you'd get more uh, or like more, understand more if you were from Luxembourg or understood their their culture? Yeah, maybe. Or... Maybe. Um, or, is it, or is it, or is it universally weird and rubbish? I have no idea. I, I, I feel maybe, like again, because there's enough cultural references in that in there that I feel that it probably plays better to that kind of audience. But here, like for um, for me, it's just weird and nonsense, and I can't tell how much of it is cultural, how much of it is just plain rubbish nonsense. Where where is Luxembourg? How long is it in Portugal, according to the film? So. Is it between France, Germany, or Switch? Which one? And Licht- where's Liechtenstein? That's not. That's, this is for a geography podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're we're, we're basically proving we've failed school now. Exactly. Cheers, Dave.
Make them yeah. look like thickos. Thank you very much. <laughs> they're, de- they're, they're definitely in Europe. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, anyway, that's um. So, would you recommend it to anyone, though, Callum? Uh, if, you need, <laughs> uh, if you're looking for if you're looking for a weird bad film to watch, it's like, like it's like a manic comedy comedy version of something like a New York Winter's Tale kind of film. It's just nonsense. So. Right, well, I've got two films for Owen now, then. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, 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 oh, are you going to make him watch a New York Winter's Tale? No, no, this is even worse. Uh, are, you uh, sure, are you sure? Because a New York Winter's Tale literally has a sequence in which somebody is fucked to, to death. So, well... I'm not well, making this you... up. I'm not making this up. <laughs> no, I, I, if, if you can promise that you won't let on to Owen, I'll email you after the podcast. Oh, I won't. With I, the will film, I will with, with the film that I'm going to make him watch. <laughs> This this thing's very unfair. We we we'll need, we'll need to attach like full on punishment as well to the box office winners league as well. Yes. As long as it's not the room again. No, I wouldn't. Okay. I wouldn't inflict that okay, on you. Thanks. <laughs> uh, so yes, yeah, so anyway, Owen, what have you seen this week? Um, I uh, well, I watched a film called The Enigma of Casper Hauser. Um, it's by Werner Herzog, who I should think is mainly known. Um, for, for two things really one, one is his work in the 70s with Klaus Kinski on um, films like Aguirre, Wrath of God, Fitzgeraldo the Nosferatu remake and also for directing a load of famous award winning documentaries um, like Grizzly Man and Cave of Forgotten Dreams etc etc uh, oh yeah he also did the Bad Lieutenant remake Port of Call New Orleans with Nick Cage in it um, and he also ate his own shoe he did that as well he's famous for eating his own shoe but yeah, let's not go there. What, why, did, why did he eat his own shoe? I think he lost a bet and he recorded it and it became a short film where he ate uh, his shoe. Um, but, right. Yeah, so moving on. <laughs> oh, he was, I know one other thing I can mention that he was in. He was the um, fingerless bad guy in Jack Reacher. The European nondescript bad guy with no fingers. There you go. That's yep. the other yep. He also cameoed for like two minutes in the beginning of Penguins of Madagascar playing Fake Creek himself. So I hear, yeah, that's right, yeah. So that, that's... Look at him with chubby little bonbons. <laughs> that's him in a nutshell. There you go, his, his entire career. Chubby um, little bonbons. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, okay, to give a little bit of background uh, about this and why I was watching it, um, I suppose it'll act as a, decla- as a disclaimer or like a warning for some other people as well. Um, because very, very recently I worked out that my wife, who claims to be like sick of movies, I watch movies all the time, like every day I'll watch a film, and she gets a bit sick of them, which I suppose is fair enough, it's not her favourite hobby, um, but I've kind of figured out, I don't think she's actually sick of films as such, what I think she's sick of is the kind of production line drivel that makes it way, makes its way to our local Cineworld and hangs around for months, you know the kind of film that fetches about three star reviews, and, um, you mean the kind of film that stops you from watching Whiplash? Precisely that, exactly that, you know. And they're the only films that she ever seems to want to be interested in coming to the cinema to watch with me, and then she leaves and says, oh, it's really boring. <laughs> like, well, you know, there's not, there's not much I can do, but it's the sort of safe kind of blockbuster type films. The Hobbit, Pacific Rim, um, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, I suppose, whoa, whoa, in a way, whoa, like... You No, well, see, these are the films, I like them, but I like all films, you know. I'll watch, even the bad films, I kind of do get something out of watching the bad films. I think it gives you perspective on the good films. But whereas she just has no time for, for these kind of films, really. So she just gets a bit bored during some of them. 
Um, but, you know, I do, what I've tried to figure out is because she gets bored with these types of films, I'm trying to push her towards stuff that I don't think she would normally gravitate to. So stuff that I've tried to make her watch recently, and then she ended up liking, was stuff like Phil, um, Locke, was la- last year, she quite enjoyed Locke, uh, Predestination even, you know, stuff like that is just, they're films that she's ended up liking that I don't think she would have chosen if it was a film for her to pick, you know. Um, so I think she's kind of bored of the standardised American approach to making movies. Um, you know, there has to be a balance though, because I know that she hates some of the overly pretentious, wanky, smug films that I end up watching sometimes. So, you know, I try to find the middle ground and the more interesting ones. It's all building up to something here. I can't it's make... building to a review, yeah. So, so <laughs> eventually, I'll get round to it, don't worry. So, um, you know, some of these, um, I don't know, experiments, trials, for want of a better word, that I've used on my wife. Some of them uh, have been successful, more successful than others. Um, you know, two things in one space. Odyssey, she quite enjoyed. Um, the same with Birdman. We went to see that at the cinema, and she, she quite enjoyed Birdman. But, you know, one of the failures was, unfortunately, the enigma of Casper Hauser. Um, I knew from the start what what it would be like, because I've seen, you know, Aguirre, Wrath of God is one of my favourite movies. It's Definitely my favourite uh, Werner Herzog film. I knew this would be very arty, very unconventional, and maybe like a step too far for her. That's apparently how it turned out. Um, she, she, we watched like five minutes of it, and she just gave me this look that meant she's not interested in this anymore. And I just turned it off and watched it on my own another time. How, but however, I, I fucking loved it. I thought it was brilliant. Um, I mean, I mean, for a few to aware of. The name Casper Hauser, does it mean anything to you? No. No. It didn't mean anything to me either before watching the film, other than the fact that it's um, a Werner Herzog film. It's basically the story, a, a true story of a real person called Casper Hauser, uh, funnily enough, who lived uh, for approximately 20 years. He died, I think, 21 years old, uh, or approximately 21 years old, they don't really know, in the early part of the 19th century in Germany. What makes him interesting is that he claimed to have spent the first decade and a half of his life locked in a dungeon or a cell with, like, minimal human contact. He, uh, you know, in the film, he has to be taught to repeat words and phrases because he has no language, you know. He just lived in this cell, chained to the floor, so one brought in some food and water for him, and that was it. Yeah, he just grew up without any human contact, aside from that. So, you know, he doesn't really understand what people are saying, uh, he doesn't really have any kind of awareness of other people as well. Um, and the real Casper Hauser was apparently slightly different uh, in that he knew some words and phrases already, but in the film, you know, it's also alleged that his story was completely made up. Anyway, completely fictional. He's kind of, some people have said he was a fraud. Um, others perhaps took him a bit more literally in what he was saying. Regardless of whether or not it was a true story, uh, or whether or not, you know, the real Hauser was a liar who fabricated his entire history. Uh, the film is told as if it were true, which is what I think makes it fascinating. Um, yeah, but so, so purely going on how the film introduced Casper, it is a man who lived in complete isolation, never learning to speak, never ate anything but bread and water, sits in his own filth playing with a wooden toy horse. That's, that's basically who he is, and it is pretty depressing to start with. And, uh, like I say, I looked over at my wife after 50 minutes, half knowing what her reaction would be as, like, this classical music played over some, like, 
this dreamlike sequence as the camera panned over some reeds and water. And I just, yeah, she clearly wasn't into this at all. And that's fair enough, to be quite honest. I think some people, it is enough to put you off. And, uh, you know, it, you do get the odd film that changes your opinion after you've watched it for a little bit. Most of the time, you do get an, a first impression from films. I think if five to ten minutes you realise you don't really enjoy this, it's got to work very hard to change your opinion. And it doesn't matter whether it's this film or whether it's a blockbuster like Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Whatever it is, you know, if you don't get on with it in the first ten minutes, it's it's really got to do something to, to, to make you sit up and pay attention. And that's what Casper Hauser did to me. I mean, I was a bit unsure of it too, to begin with. Because you're you are very distant in this film. It doesn't suck you in as being in any way. Uh, you're not involved in the story. You're just an onlooker observing at a distance how an adult who's had no contact with people can learn and adapt after he's basically been uh, feral for his entire life. You know, and the way Herzog chronicles uh, the short period in this chapter life from being taught how to walk. Um, before being abandoned and then joining a circus to eventually kind of learning to read, write and then solve logic puzzles in his own unique way and so on. It's just, it's brilliant. It's, it is brilliant. I really loved it. And the pace of the film is surprisingly quick. It's 110 minutes long. Um, but oddly, it kind of feels like half of that. Even though there isn't a huge amount of dialogue to it and it's very, um, you know, Time progresses through it, but it doesn't give you cue cards to say that, you know, this is now 10 years later, you know, 10 months later, or whatever. It doesn't do any of that. It just, it's just a series of events happening to this guy. Um, but even so, you know, there's a huge amount to absorb from it. The, the direction's compelling. Um, the growth that Hauser goes through feels natural. It doesn't feel fake or forced or phony. Um, you know, and in fact, that can, most of the positives can be attributed to uh, Bruno S., as he's credited in the film. I think his full name was Bruno Schleinstein. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, most of the credit can go to the way he portrayed Casper. Uh, apparently, the real Bruno S. had been like in and out of ment mental in institutions during his, his life. And Herzog sort of saw him in a documentary. There was a documentary about this, um, uh, this, this, this guy, and he, he said, I want him in a film. And, you know, I read actually between takes, between like takes or before they started filming things, this Bruno S guy would just scream for ages. He'd just stand there and scream. And you know, it, it kind of gives that, he brings that edge into the character, you know, to, to trivialize it as edge. Um, but you know, it, and there's a quote from Werner Herzog, which I've taken from the Wikipedia page, which is apparently something he said about Bruno when he died five years ago. He said, in all my films and with all the great actors with whom I have worked, he was the best. There is no one who comes close to him. Uh, I mean, in his humanity and the depth of his performance, there is no one like him. And that, you know, to come from Werner Herzog is some compliment. And based on this film alone, it's kind of hard to dispute because he, he really does give this, this guy, uh, this Casper Hauser character a life, you know. So yeah, so it's a very good movie. I really enjoyed it. It came close to toppling a gear as my favourite Herzog film, but didn't quite do enough. Um, but I can also see why it might not appeal to everybody. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're into Herzog at all, definitely worth checking out. It's 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 fantastic. Okay, well, from uh, Werner Herzog to Harry Potter <laughs> in in one fell swoop. Yep. Uh, on my continued quest to watch the 
the seven is it eight. Harry Potter film? Eight Harry Potter film. Was that got an oct an octology? Is that? Yeah, why not? Yeah, it's a oh, new one. I told you why not. Yeah, um, tragedy, whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> as as I have to watch, as mentioned previously on the podcast, all of these Harry Potter films, so I can get my girlfriend to watch Star Wars. Um, Star Wars is up next, though, so a bit of respite from wizard-related nonsense for me. I didn't get on with the first one. I thought it might have been because the first one is very obviously aimed at children. I know the books and the films get darker as the as the series goes on, uh, and this one only being the second one still may be a bit kiddie and not that dark. But it's just more of the same, isn't it? I mean, in this one, Harry goes back to Hogwarts um, and flies a car, and then there's something called the Chamber of Secrets, which has been opened. Um, I lose interest in the plot in these, because it just goes on so much. There's so many stupid names and potions and things. <laughs> and just, I mean, I don't think the acting's bad. It's not great, but it's not bad. But it's just sort of like, just, um, yeah. You know, as somebody who's made it through all of these films, I will tell you they do get better as soon as they get us in Chris Columbus from the shit. I have only... Don't attack Chris Columbus. I've, I've watched a couple of the Harry Potter films. I couldn't tell you which ones. Um, I can't remember. I, I knew, actually, uh, I know which one I have seen half of. My, my wife, again, going back to my wife, yeah, of course. Um, she watched... Uh, all the Harry Potter films up to the last two. She hasn't seen the last two. Uh, the one that was split into two films, I mean, well, you know, uh, whatever that was called. And over Christmas it was on TV, so she recorded them. And she started to watch that whilst I was writing a Bruce Lee retrospective review. And I kept glancing over it and I thought, Jesus, this is fucking awful. I was like, oh, is that Donald Gleeson? What's he doing? You know, just spotting the actors in it. And she just, she got so bored that she turned it off and deleted it without finishing it. She got so, like, bored halfway through. And I thought, yeah, I'm not surprised. It looks terrible. I can't imagine how the rest of the films, if the series is meant to progress to something better towards the end, what they must be like to start with. Well, they also get more incomprehensible as well if you haven't read the books. <laughs> right. But I don't, I don't think, if they weren't based on, on best-selling books, and there must be something about the books, because, you know, they are very popular, mm. and people love them, and, and you know, kids right through to adults reading them. If it wasn't based on such good books, I don't think it'd be anywhere near as popular. Mm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think the films are, are particularly good translations of the book. Mainly because um, the problem for films is that they do the adaptation thing of adapting everything, then cutting holes out, then not explaining the stuff they cut out. Mm. So the yeah. only way you can know what's happening is if you've read the book, and that's not how you do an adaptation. No, yeah, you you have to you have to actually retrofit it for a film because otherwise you're just filming book onto like a book onto a film, and uh, not only will that look awful and clunky, at the same then it's just what's the point. Mm. Yeah. Um, but in any case, as well, uh, admittedly, I haven't watched any of these since I saw Death of Hallows Part 2 in the cinema opening weekend in 2011. But, uh, also, and also, my generally forget that it might be due to the fact that I'm now the first six. <laughs> in, in two days, um, two days before I saw the seventh one in cinemas as part of a school trip. So, 
uh, I even wrote blog, I even wrote articles on them as well to kind of call my slide into insanity. <laughs> well, uh, they do, they do kind of get better. Prisoner of Azkaban is at least a better by Alfonso Cuarón, so. Okay. Well, I mean, the, uh, so it's, I, got, it's got a mood, if nothing else, that one. Okay. Yeah, I was certainly in a, in a mood <laughs> after watching it. And hey! It, yeah, it's just, it's, I don't think they're for me. Um, but I don't think they're particularly good either, even, even if they were for me. Um, they're kind of like event start. cinema, aren't they? I mean, I watched yeah. Um, yeah. Boyhood uh, last week, whenever it was. Yeah, I know you hate it. <laughs> I thought Boyhood was quite good. But there was a bit in Boyhood where their mum is reading them, the Harry Potter books. And then when they're a bit older, they go to like this big event, the big screening of the Harry Potter film, and it's this massive ordeal, and the screaming kids get everywhere, and they get free copies of the books and stuff. I think... You know, that's kind of what who they're for, really. I haven't got a problem with people liking Harry Potter. Uh, if they're of that kind of, uh, can I say, age audience, you know what I mean, the people who've yeah. read the books and been into the books and then they've gone to see the films adapted and so. But I just, I found it really boring. And I really feel very sorry for you, Steve, for going no, through this for like, all Like, when I hear about the books, I'm quite interested in some of it because it sounds like, uh, J.K. Rowling kind of created this whole universe, like kind of um, Tolkien did with Lord of the Rings. Not as not as good, obviously, but you know, in the same way. Mm. I'm, I, I want to know like how the wizard world interacts with the normal world, and does like people, the general public, know about wizards and stuff, and how that works. I don't know why I'm interested. You know, I want to know what that's all about. Mm. Yeah. But anyway. But, next, you know, week on, next week on the Fell Critics podcast, we're all going to be yeah. old men ranting at clowns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, if we're not already. Mm. Uh, also, question. Are you starting the wife off on Star Wars Episode 1 or Episode 4? It, it's not wife. Um, oh. so let's, let's make that distinction quite clear now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, no, I've decided to, to skip the prequels but I'm, depending on how much I dislike Harry Potter, I might make her suffer through them. <laughs> Are you trying to turn her into being a fan of Star Wars? Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, show about getting the Tardicopsy Clone Wars series, but otherwise just, like, ignore them. Move on. Yeah, I might just tell her what happened in them. Give her a brief yeah. plot rundown. and Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's that. Also, um started getting into Game of Thrones, but it's good, it's not great. I don't think it's as good, great as what some people wait, are claiming it is. Just wait. What, how far are you right now? Uh, a couple of episodes into season two. And, you've, and you're still not fully sold? I'm sold on it, I just don't think it's great. It's good. I like it. It's enjoyable. Oh, and I feel like we have a mutant It's good television, it's not great television. Yeah, you like, said the same about Breaking Bad, and I really like that if, as well. So, if you if you said to me name the top ten TV shows ever, I was going to take a lot in the next two and a bit seasons I've got to watch of Game of Thrones before I'm up to date with it. It's going to take an awful lot for it to get in that top ten, mm. but it's good. Do you know that I'm not, the thing that's going to put you off with the rest of them? Then I think um, is over the course of the next season, season three, I think. They, they've got so many characters in it now that everyone's plot strands get thinner and thinner. And 
it's one of those, like we just talked about with Harry Potter, you kind of need to read the books a little bit, I think. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm following along fine. Yeah. So, I don't know what you people's problems are. <laughs> hmm. I really like um, it. I love the, the, the designs of it as well. Just talking about Harry Potter again with the world design. Hmm. I love that aspect to, to Game Especially of Thrones. Especially well, like, oh, the way the entire set design like, just kind of gets darker and darker. Mm. Like, back about the further into the films you get, uh, like, again, once again, show that willing away of innocence and it becomes kind of a war movie by the end of the um, Plus, wait, the further you get, the more you just essentially have to go like guess which, like just like get to do recognize which British actors turned out because <laughs> yeah. pretty much everybody is in here except Danny Dyer. Yeah, except I'm... Danny Dyer. So far, could be in the next series. Who knows? Oh Christ! I, oh, I, I would love, I would love that. He's, he's, he really has found this level with EastEnders. <laughs> the... What is he, the main character? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> EastEnders is really that man's level of, of, of kind of acting. <laughs> they could do flashbacks in Game of Thrones and bring him in as Sean Bean's old, you know, when he was younger. That would be brilliant. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I'm going to pitch that to them. See what HBO make of that. Yeah. Um, but then, but then he wasn't a cockney, was he? Ned Stark. So, um, well. Americans well, don't know that. The king's hand to Danny Dyer. It's got a nice ring to it. <laughs> yes. uh, anyway, that's all for what we've been watching, and we'll have a quick break, and then we'll be back with uh, some new release reviews. <laughs> Time to review a couple of new releases, and first up is Kingsman. Um, both Owen and Callum have seen this one, so why don't you tell us about that? I think Callum's already had a review of this go up on the website. Yep. Um, yeah. We, but tell us about the film. Um, starting with you, Owen. Okay. Um, basically, it's kind of a spy movie, to put it succinctly. Um, it's directed by Matthew Vaughan with a screenplay by Jane Goldman and based on a Mark Miller comic. So basically, um, if you've seen Kickass, that's them. That's the, those three together worked on Kickass. So basically, if you've seen Kickass, then in tone, Kingsman: The Secret Service is not too dissimilar, really, in a lot mm. of ways. Um, it's the, the film's kind of like an ode to older classic Bond movies, whilst comfortably being a violent, playful, and darkly comic action flick in its own right that the Bond films have never been. You know, it blends that, that humour with some of the more, uh, you, for want of a better phrase, kick-ass moments. Um, you know, it stars yeah. Colin Firth as a veteran Kingsman secret agent called Galahad, who gets young hoodlum uh, Eggsy played by Taron Egerton, who I've not seen in anything else, actually, but I, I quite liked him in this, but, um, yeah, Eggsy gets him out of police custody, and as a favour to Eggsy's deceased father, um, who saved Galahad's life, um, you know, he kind of recognises the talent in Eggsy, um, and the skill that he kind of possesses, and takes him under his wing, you know, and tries to prepare him to become the latest addition to his spy gang. Um, so Eggsy has to compete with other nominated candidates and protégés from other spies as part of the Kingsman secret agency and um, in order to be considered for a position on Michael Caine's round table of spies 
they also face a threat from Samuel L. Jackson, who's playing a billionaire bad guy who can't stand the sight of blood. So there's a, there is a lot of humour in it. It's, it is absolutely laugh out loud funny at times. Um, I remember when I saw the comic for this. I saw the comic before I heard anything about it being a film, and I was a bit dubious because I think Mark, Mark Miller's now got a reputation, uh, whether that's fairly or unfairly, as testing the waters with his ideas for films by writing them up as comics first and waiting for them to be snapped up and seeing what the public's reaction is to them. You know, which invariably they always are. They're always turned into films now. You, you can't put a piece of shit on a toilet paper without someone wanting to turn it into a film. Um, I mean, just like Matthew Ryan just like knocks on his door and goes, I see you made something, I, I see you made something, this is gold! Jane, Jane, we've got yeah, two films, mate! I think that literally must be how it works, because that's what's happened with this. Um, you know, the Secret Service looked to me like it was shit, so I never bothered with it. And even seeing the trailer for Kingsman, um, whether it was earlier this year or last year, I can't remember, I thought last it looked year. a bit shit then. And I like Firth, I like Colin Firth, as most people should, because he, when he's in his more serious roles, he's fucking amazing. In a single man, absolutely brilliant. Uh, you know, King's Speech as well, he was good, uh, although the film's nuts, so fantastic and everything. Railway Man, he was good. Girl with a Pearl Earring, he was good. You know, but seeing him in the trailer for this, I just wasn't sure about him or the movie. Um, Not helped by the fact that it was pushed back at the very, very last minute last year. Yeah, uh, it was... Which is never a good... Which usually is never a good time. Exactly. Normally, that means it's not tested very well and they're going to edit stuff. Um, I don't know if that was the case this time. But, yeah, I mean, I did feel the same way watching the trailer to um, Kick-Ass, which, uh, excuse my parlance, I thought that looked utter balls as well. Um, (laughs) But, you know, actually, both Kick-Ass and both Kingsman... um, Turns out to be very entertaining movies in the end. So I should have known better with Kingsman, I suppose, because, like I say, the same thing happened with, with Kick-Ass to me. Um, thought they looked a bit crap, had little expectations for them, and then they turned out to be really quite entertaining. So I don't know whether it's because I went in with low expectations and it was better than, than, than I was prepared for, and that took me by surprise, perhaps. I don't know. But um, I mean, I know you reviewed it on the site already, Callum, but yeah. did, did you enjoy it as well? Uh, yes. Yes, very much so. Which is also special because I went in actually genuinely worried that it wasn't going to be good, even though Matthew Vaughan has yet to make a bad film. So, um, although, yeah. admittedly, although admittedly I haven't seen Stardust yet, so but I've heard great things about Stardust. So. It, yeah, it's a very British sort of film, that one. But, um, oh, well, goody. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, no, in any case, I really, really like this one. Um, and it's, Playing a fair bit better in my brain the more I let it ruminate. Hmm. Um, it's very much a lot like Kick-Ass, um, but fed through the spy film genre. Yeah. Um, like that same anarchic, irreverent, gleefully borderline offensive uh, nature of everything in that. Um, only kind of not as great. I mean, in fairness, I think Kick-Ass is amazing. Okay. Not Kick-Ass 2, but I think Kick-Ass is amazing. Um, and that there. So... Admittedly, if you're not, like, so admittedly, if you're even, like, in the ballpark of Kick-Ass, you're doing pretty well. Mm. Um, but, like, in its best moments, it, like, it evokes Kick-Ass, but in its own separate way, that makes me just glad to be there. But then in its moments when it's not fully on, I was sat there enjoying it in a match, but also going, I should always, I don't know, watch Kick-Ass again when I get home. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, um, otherwise, I do really, really enjoy, I really, really enjoyed this film. Um, it's got, 
um, fantastic performances. Like, for example, Colin Firth surprisingly really is convincing as an action star. He was, wasn't he? I was yeah. taken aback a little bit. And like, just how come it, it's both that, like, himself there, and then they also must have amazingly well-hidden stunt doubles as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Like, there's that there, Tam Edgerton's great work as Eggsy, like, they're like, mm. get, always finding the good heartness of Eggsy, but at the same time reminding us that he is a playful young scallion of a lad. Yeah, exactly. Um, there, uh, Mark Strong goes wonderfully against type there, as, <laughs> as, as a nice, friendly competitor. As, as a good guy, as well. Yeah. You don't see that as very a often. Good guy, yeah. yeah. Um, and Samuel Jackson's clearly having a ball at the end, yeah. like as a villain. Playing in better Samuel Jackson film, we always have fun in anything. So. <laughs> That's true. Um, also, Mark Hamill is in this. I noticed. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. It took me a little uh, a second. It's like I know him. What do I know him from? Oh my God, that's Luke Skywalker. It was. Yeah. Uh, I've even followed along with him as he's moved into voice acting, so I know what he looks like today, and I still keep forgetting what he looks like. <laughs> I yeah. just said when he showed up in like the beginning of the fifth season of Chuck and the credits went, Mark Hamilton, like, Mark Hamilton in this episode? <laughs> yeah, because it kind um, of, all he is to me is um, Luke Skywalker and the voice of Joker. That's basically it. And um, yeah, so I was a bit surprised, but he, he was all right, I suppose. He yeah, didn't really uh, It's pacey, even though at two hours and change, it is too long. Um, like at two hours and change, it is a, it is a bit too long, I feel like. Right. Um, uh, uh, but more importantly, I feel like this is a film that has made me cement that Matthew, Matthew Vaughan is now one of the best directors of action in cinema today. Which yeah, well, this feels, a- which feels wrong to say, but when I watch a film, it makes perfect sense, essentially. Well, like, I mean, he's made, you know, Kick-Ass and X-Men, which both have pretty memorable action scenes yeah. in them, you know, yeah. as well as this. I think if you, if you think about this one scene probably in particular, which yes. this film will be remembered for. And I'll say no more than the church scene. Okay? Yeah. Um, I didn't even allude to that, to that in my review. I just put it down as a kind of, as one specific scene, which starts off as kind of like, slightly uncomfortable, like, mm. and, like extreme wish fulfillment, but then just goes on for so long and then becomes so, and pushes it so far and becomes so much fun, helps with a perfectly chosen music cue, it must be said. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, but I just end, end with this giant gleeful smile on my face. But the reason why I say um, he's one best director is because he purposely goes against the typical Hollywood way of shooting action, basically. You know, you know, like really shaky cameras, framed really tightly close to the people filming that there, and then cutting between, I mean, like I'm six cuts every five seconds there because you know realism immersing the viewer. Yeah. Uh, and that, um, but instead, here instead, you know, he prefers slightly longer takes. Steadier cameras, not completely steady cameras, but steady enough that you can see what's going on. Um, spaced a bit further away again so you can see what's going on. And also having a genuine sense of style as yeah. well. And um, no jump cuts, which are, is yeah. infuriating because, you know, that's how yeah. most action films shoot them though, is just short frame, short frame, short frame, short frame. Yeah. You know, like one second with each camera angle and then cuts to something else. Yeah. Whereas plus it, every shot, plus every shot here as well is always leading into something as well. Like it's not just mm. kind of like just that guy. It's always like, and then, and then, like that was, yeah. plus he does great things as well with, um, depth perception, speed, um, like, um, speed, like not just about that, that side of super smooth, this was a super smooth, although that does get the point, but mainly like how every action scene moves, like is sped up, Slightly, like enough to be noticeable, but not so much that it kind of moves forward at comical pace enough. But to give it more, you know, like, you know more speed, more hex, mm-hmm. more pace, and it looks amazing. 
as well. Like even when it's using per like purposely slight jarring CG kind of like cameras like angle changes and that there. Like like panel switches basically. Like uh, I I noticed that in my view specifically it recalls to mind a lot. Um, the Lucas Lee fight from Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and most of the World's End. I was watching that as well. I thought that very much of that kind of Matthew Vaughn didn't just take notes when Edgar Wright was doing those films. He basically just stole the entire thing from <laughs> himself. Mm. But uh, but it works. It's great. I also had a friend when I was talking about it today with him who noted that it felt a lot like Raid mm. as well. Um, I think he's referring to that more again with the longer takes and the brutality of violence in points. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it could just be the fact we currently have low standards, and the fact that again, not a month, not a month ago now, we had to sit through Tack Green mm. um, and and noted hack Olivia Megaton. Yes, um, Olivia Megaton, who I wish would just fuck off already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like yeah, he's um, you know Matthew Vaughan is a great thing. Also. I initially put down my review that Kingsman is, um, that I thought Kingsman didn't actually have much going on under the surface until, um, film critic Hulk tweeted that he'd seen the film and noted about how instead of very much about the extreme anger of its class elements there. Um, specifically the fact, uh, of the film, like, especially, this is a giant screen against classism, but not just about how the upper class treat lower class, but also how the lower class kind of wallow in this in this self-created prison right there and how everybody is good at art but the class doesn't mean you need to sit there and walk yourself into these public perceptions mm. of Richie snobs and love like it's fine in a way that Matthew Vaughan's work is very kind of like direct in your face purposely pushing viewer buttons you know kind of to provoke reactions out of them but Matt, what Vaughan and Goldman do with Kingsman and with Kick-Ass is they kind of stand down the edges to make it more like to get rid of that extreme hatred and make like and make it slightly more accessible to a viewer. I think they kind of like, made it very wishy-washy, to be honest. I was the opposite. Yeah. I thought that um, it's there because of that's the story. You know, he's yeah. a kid who's from what looks like a council estate, and there's a guy who looks like he's rather upper class who's taking him on. And I yeah. think that was just, that was, there was they had to deal with it in some way. So they you, mean like Padding, you mean like Paddington did with the um, uh, immigration elements, basically? Well, I didn't see Paddington in um. But, I, sorry, I keep I keep forgetting that I put myself into films that nobody else does. Yes, although I think yeah. I've heard a lot of people say Paddington was quite good. Um, yeah, it, it was quite good. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I was just going to say the other thing about Kingsman that I wanted to, to discuss. Steve, you can probably um, chip in on this bit as well because you don't have to have seen it to, to be able to answer this. But I had a tweet from uh, at New Rules New Life who asked me, "Is it?" What do you need to be an 18 certificate nowadays? It says, I can't believe Kingsman is a 15. I've had a look. It's still yeah. on the BBFC site as a 12A, anyway. And he says, surely the scene in the church, which we've briefly glossed over, was an 18. He says, if that wasn't, I can't imagine what would be. Bloody excellent scene, by the way. Yeah. So, but he's right. I mean, there's there's no sex. Nobody has any gay kisses, I presume, if there was... Like Two gay sex people and nudity is the sole thing that will push us up to 18, basically. Yeah. But there's, you also, know, there's actually, how, oh, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, there is excessive violence, there's swearing, people's heads explode, and you see it. Um, I don't know. But, 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 but Dread, so Dread was an 18. Yeah. What's the main difference? Like, I don't think there's that much blood, actually, in Kingsman. No, like, I think there's the, no real. Like, 
Yeah. Like, prior, except with the exception of that ridiculous sequence when Pomp and Circumstance starts playing. Yeah. Um, but even then, that's not even blood. Like, it's purposely coloured in a way to attempt to sanitise things. I think that's literally the only thing, is that there's no blood. Hmm. And also, no nudity. So that would protect the kids from those sex folks. Exactly. But people's heads are exploding. Fine. No, 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 that's fine. Apparently, yeah. One man to be 15 years old, then, you know, extreme violence like this is, is the reason you go to see some useful films. <laughs> Wasn't there a scene like, a film like this you saw recently, Steve? I seem to remember us having a conversation about something like this. Um, nothing to think of, no. Uh, was it? Uh, uh, Taken, I think, possibly. We might have talked about yeah. in general. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. in a minute while, they. Hmm. But, you know, so there we go. Especially, look, the way, especially the way it cuts itself into a 12A means that the, uh, like, the wife death in that there was something that they took me for. It wasn't until somebody said out loud in the script that she had a first clear way. Hmm. Did she really? Yeah. <laughs> I think that it's just another example of why the BBC, uh, BBFC certificates are cobblers. A load of bollocks. But there we yep. go. It's a different conversation. We also had hey, another tweet. Emily, Emily's going to be an 18, though. Although, in fairness, it looks like Samuel Hayek will be naked at some point. So oh. there we go. There's our difference. I, w- I was half expecting Fifty Shades of Grey to come out as a 12A, but no, that is for 18. Oh, oh, whilst I was stood outside, like, do my thing while I wait outside for trailers to finish, and you're reading that, I did have, I did spy a mother and, um, daughter, and teenage daughter walking past a Fifty Shades of uh, billboard about there going, can't wait to see that! Can't wait to see that! <laughs> Wow. The daughter does not look 18. She's going to be very disappointed. <laughs> yeah. We did have one more tweet. I'll just mention that because um, uh, at Shorty1969, Mike, our good friend Mike has been on the podcast now, uh, said, uh, Kingsman is great fun, great cast, top score. Taron Edgerton could be big. Um, I think he's the latest in a long line of young, Brit- well, youngish British uh, actors of sort of a similar ilk who could go on to be quite successful. You know, um, Jack O'Connell's doing very well for himself now. Please, please let him have a full-on career. Like, like, let this be his launch into superstardom. Yeah, it. yeah, precisely. I mean, it could be. Um, yeah, so I, I agree with Mike. I think he could be could be quite huge on the basis of his performance in this. Maybe it could be the new Alan Taylor Johnson. Yeah, but, but he does a big kick-ass, blows it all away, and then goes and starts in Godzilla, and you go, oh, yeah. Maybe we were wrong, guys. <laughs> but who would have expected Godzilla to fail, though, really? Yeah. Well, yeah, as well, um, before we move on here as well, I must note that um, as much as I do enjoy Kingsman, you enjoy Kingsman, it has actually been very divisive, um, especially at my university, with people that I've talked to people who have despised the film and found it was believed it to be absolutely dreadful. Um, but which very much, again, was the same thing in Kick-Ass. So, yeah. I mean, it's very silly. It is a very silly film. Uh, yeah. From the plot to the the way some things take place during the plot um, and the way the characters are kind of developed. Same pretty much the entire last half hour, aren't you? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I mean, the whole thing with Samuel L. Jackson's character and his message behind what he's doing, his motivations and stuff, it's all a bit silly. I mean, it doesn't get... I've seen it handled better in Channel 4 TV shows, but... but- but it's also kind of an affectionate, like, parody and love letter to classic Bond. Exactly, so. exactly. And it's, it, in that sense, it, I thought it was very much a fun, very aware of its silliness kind of film. I, I like it. It's a better Bond film than most of the Bond films we've seen in the last 20 years. <laughs> well, there you go, yeah. Okay. Because Gone uh, World 94, so it's technically <laughs> counts. 
Okay, and on now on to the big animated release um, of the year so far, uh, Big Hero 6. Yes, of the uh, year so, so far, which we are 33 days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but probably likely to remain one of the biggest animated films of 2015. Well, it's actually a 2014 one that was held off because Disney just refused to let films come out on time here. Yeah. Again, you colonise a country one time and this is what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think technically we'll call it a 2015 film because I'm only interested in films that come out in the UK, to be honest. I want the dates they come out here. And Big Hero 6, it, it was really annoying that it took so long to come out over here. Really annoying. Because it was in, was it November? It was yeah, in, uh, November, um, fifth, like the, the same weekend Interstellar opened. Yeah, and it's, and it's on, Stella. it comes out on Blu-ray pretty soon, I'm pretty sure. Yep. So it's it's absolutely ridiculous, especially as it was going to be a massive film. So yeah, yeah. Well, in any case, it doesn't matter anyway because people still turned up to watch it. They still went to see it, yeah. So I suppose it makes no difference. Again, my, we... cin- my cinema screen was completely rammed on Saturday. It was ridiculous. Yeah. It was also rammed back on like January third when they had that preview screening as well. Mm-hmm. So mm. anyway, before we talk about the actual film, um, yes. just just very quickly because. You mentioned it won the at the Annie's um, feast. Did you like feast? I love feast. But then again, I'm also a dog owner and a very sappy romantic at heart. So yeah, a story about a dog always gets to me. That but that's just that as well. But also again, the um, the bit in the back, like being tattooed in the background, the relationship there as well. Just again, it all it, it, like again as a dog owner and a very sappy romantic at heart. It just like I I, I, got, I was gone for tears. <laughs> Uh, I it, didn't go that especially, far. Especially, <laughs> that it, especially when it also evokes Paper Man, from, like short and before Wreck-It Ralph, in terms of the animation style, mm. and that same wordless way of delivering its story, and it's just, and, oh, oh. Yeah. It was very More nice. people need to make animated shorts, is what I'm saying. We need, yeah, Disney seem to be the only people who put them on before their films now, don't they? Mm. And yeah. other oh, Pixar, just... Pixar, I suppose. But that's Disney anyway. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, Big Hero 6 then. Right, Big Hero 6. Uh, the 54th Disney animated classic, um, directed by Don Hall and Chris, Chris Williams, Chris Williams' previous, uh, Bolt, which was when this new Disney renaissance pretty much started up. Mm. Um, tells the tale of Hiro, Hama, of Hiro Hamada, played by Ryan Potter, um, who is a precocious, but also incredibly lazy, 40, um, 13, 14 year old robotics genius, who lives in San Francisco with his older brother Tadashi, played by Daniel Henney. Um, they are both very close, and Hero spends his days doing bot fighting, like illegal bot fighting, essentially letting his life go to waste because he's burnt out his direction. Do, do you want to explain that? what bot fighting is in case people don't understand your accent? It's, it's <laughs> it could be something entirely different. Robot fighting. There we go. Thank you. Okay. I don't even want to know what that is. <laughs> right. right, okay. In any case, uh, Tadashi takes Hero, Hero to his university, you know, essentially it's like a game straight program there, and Hero resolves to be, you know, to join the university to make something of himself, until tragedy strikes. Um, and incidentally, one of the big thoughts of Big Hero 6 is that it telegraphs this tragedy way too obviously, yeah, early. like, with, like, giant blinking neon signs pointing to it going, yeah, this is happening, this is going to happen in half an hour, deal with it. Um, in any case, it happens, Hero falls into a depression, into a deep depression, um, and it's in this deep depression that he ends up activating Baymax, which is Tadashi's invention, which is a personal 
robotic healthcare companion, uh, who takes it upon itself to help Hero out of his depression by uh, help by going off and solving the mystery of what happened of behind the tragedy, which as it turns out may not have been so random after all. Uh, um, you may have noticed I, during that thing I didn't mention superheroics or any of the other members of the Big Hero 6 team there, and there is a reason for that, because this film is actually instead the story of grief, loss, depression, and you know, coming back out of that darkness, essentially there, instead of a superhero film. Like, superheroes are there and they are vital to the plot, but instead that's because that's how Hero chooses to get out, like, to fight his way out of his depression there. Like, that's what he throws himself into, that's his means of doing these things in that there. So, for Although in the final third, film. it does sort of turn into a superhero film. Really. Yeah, sort sort of, but like, well, I'll explain that in a bit. Okay. Like, um, again, like in a way that very much means that it can feel superfluous for a lot of people in that, but at the same time works because you know, again, he's finding something to drag himself out here. Um, and the film itself is very much its relationship between Hero and Baymax, uh, with Hero uh, being this. Um, I've heard complaints specifically from a friend of mine um, that he is a boring habit old hero, but I don't see it that much in that because I find Hero himself to be a very likable guy. Like a very likable, enjoyable person to be around. And his struggles with his um like with the depression and his loss of that feel real. They feel genuine because like a lot of film, um it works on crafting characters. Like lots of strong character work there. And then having a plot come from those characters and stuff like that. Um there. So I really like Hero and as I think everybody who's seen the film will know now, Baymax is amazing. Like, mm. just being this adorable AI who's pacifist and childlike nature just, like, completely resonates with me. Uh, like, it's kind of just this pure-hearted goodness, essentially. But also with these kind of, like, little pre-programmed, like, procedures and affectations that remind you that it's not human. That, that like, enough, but it can pass off a human enough that when it, it you know, essentially sits there not fully grasping things like, you know, emotional stress and that. Um, but it feels more jarring and at times heartbreaking. Um, also, incidentally, whilst I'm here, I need to give praise to Ryan Potter, who nails every single line of Hero's dialogue there, um, doing amazing work. And also Scott Adley as Baymax, who is Baymax. Like, like not he's great as Baymax, he is Baymax. Like, the second he opens his mouth, it is one of those genius like moment no you got this you got this perfect kinds of castings that Disney have just like been on a roll with lately you know, like with John C. Riley as Ralph the Mecca Bell uh, you know uh, Kristen Balazano from Frozen Kristen Charles Mabel and Bradley Bowles like they've just been on a roll there and Scott Adley is Baymax like that he elevates that role from what he's already a great character anyway he just elevates it even further the perfect voice delivers everything yeah um, I mean I'm, I've not seen Frozen Wreck-It Ralph was probably the last Disney film that came out that I saw. I, I didn't like Wreck-It Ralph that much. Big Hero 6, I don't think it's a perfect film either. I don't think it's perfect. No, it's but Baymax is perhaps the best Disney character they've made. But I know it's not them because it came from a Marvel comic as well. But the, the way they... Loosest possible way. In the loosest yeah. possible way. The way they've turned him into this character in the film, uh, mm. I loved it. I thought he was... Almost every line he has or every little, like scene that he's in I loved it that, those are the bits that I really enjoyed during this um, yeah, like, um, and, and I also adore his design as well like the way that yeah. he sticks like the way that he sticks out in the world like mm. that final name like he doesn't convince in the same way that everybody else in that world does 
Speaking of, this is as good a segue as any, San Francisco. Holy mother of God is San Francisco a beautiful, wonderful world to look at. <laughs> um, like, from just a design standpoint, it's so well built with little touches um, and details. Specifically, for us, uh, San Francisco is an amalgamation between San Francisco and Tokyo. Like, mashing them together to give essentially the best of both worlds there. And it's gorgeous, like, little architectural details, grime, dust, the wave of streets moving around. It's, I think it's the best example I've ever like, there's a chase scene, like, not, uh, there's a car chase scene, but there's also a chase scene earlier in the film where Hero's trying to run after Baymax, who's off, um, you know, like, following the lead, like, accidentally, whatever, like that. And it cuts between all these different areas of San Francisco, where, technically, it should be incoherent, and kind of, okay, how do we get from here to here? But the world is so well detailed and convincing and livable on that, that um, it, like, it all just works. Like, you don't process of, okay, how do we get from bustling city centre here to that sudden, damp, abandoned alleyway? You know, like, it just works in that sense. Um, also down to character animation as well. Like, not so much character designs, which are, you know, that typical kind of Disney, you know, smooth edges, wide eyes, etc. Like, that kind of tangled um, design they've been going on. But specifically the animations, like, they're weighty, like they're weighty, they move, they have heft, dynamism, in a way, like, if the characters are frozen, like, if the world of frozen essentially is like a movie set, like, obvious, an obviously fake, constructed movie set, and its cast are kind of like dolls, essentially, you know, kind of like stiff, like, like stiff, obviously fake. Big Hero 6 feels more like a real world, populated with real people, um, like, especially as well how the camera works, well, it's just a hard to train a dragon thing of, you know, of diving and ducking and jumping around and bouncing around that like a live action camera's filming these events. Um, yeah. Anyways, I haven't talked about the rest of the Big Hero 16 yet. And again, there's a reason for that because again, this is Hero and Baymax's movie, essentially. And because Hero opening up to the rest of his friend is a huge milestone step for him, like in his recovery, that means that the first hour or so of the movie is like just it's mostly Baymax and Hero together. Mm. And that means that most of the rest of Big Hero 6, which are Gogo Tamada, played by Jamie Chung, Honey Lemon, played by Jensen Rodriguez, Wasabi, played by Damon Wines Jr., and Freddy by TJ Miller, whose thing now apparently is comic relief in kids' animated movies, but hey, it's working for him. Um, plus, because otherwise the alternative is he becomes the comic relief in Michael Bay movies, and if you've seen Transformers Danger Extinction, no. No. <laughs> no. Um, that guy's that they don't get much screen time, but they make the most of it. Because, again, even with that minimal amount of screen time, they still feel like people, like fully developed characters who I can picture existing outside this film. Um, specifically down to small little details. You find out about them, like Honey Lemon in particular could just be, like, could have, should have just been another typical science nerd go, girl type of thing. But, like, the, but her constantly excited way, like, way of speaking, her animations, uh, um, Genesis Rodriguez's wonderful vocal performance, and that, again, it makes it feel like a fully defined person, um, who exists outside of the confines of Big Hero 6. Which is very much kind of what I feel about the film itself, because this is very much kind of like an origin story, essentially. Like, I, I get the feeling Disney wants to make a franchise out of this. Um, if not of, if not of actual, like, cinema films, like, the animated canons, they don't do sequels that much about them, you know, maybe TV series and short films and such and that. I don't want more in the traditional sense, you know, like, in terms of, you know, like, the big superhero sequel or a traditional TV series, you know, where they go off and do superhero heroes every now and again. I don't even want, 
the superhero. I just want more time of these characters being themselves, like interacting with each other. Um, like, because the small little glimpses you get are convincing enough and enjoyable and lovable enough that um, it works. It works totally. I was, um, like, I first saw the film uh, beginning of January at previous screening. Um, and then two weeks later, whilst I was writing about Comfort Panda 2, um, one specific scene, like, ju- like one specific short scene jumped into my head there, which is a bit where they, uh, where all the other members of the team messaged Hero, just like saying, like, yeah, just trying to wish him well, like, you know, fresh him out. And it's just such an adorable, cute, genuinely heartwarming scene where you get the sense of how they are as friends. I just want more of that. You know, like, the non-dramatic stuff, but, you know, they don't film and, you know, but you don't do the story because conflict is getting into drama and all that. Like, I want more of that. Like, if nothing, for everything Big Hero 6 does wrong, and it does do some things wrong, it's a bit rushed in the finale. Um, it, again, it telegraphs that tragedy way too early, and I wish, I, I wish the Fallout Boy song didn't play during the montage montage. Mm. Um, in the same way that Shut Up and Drive did not need to play during um, Becky Glass driving montage sequence. Um, I, I, and I also wish the film had enough faith in its lost theme to not reverse the Disney death at the end. Like, like you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And also that very last non-post-credits, post-credits sequence as well. But um, the non-post-credits sequence really does not need to be there at all. Essentially, if, it, if the film stopped like 90 seconds before it did, <laughs> like, it's got problems, but the character work is so strong. And the dynamics between characters are so strong, and the world is so believable, but everything else just kind of falls into place. Like, this is a film that touches me on many character-focused levels, but everything just wants to go. It's incredibly funny. It's, like, seriously, this is a hilarious, hilarious movie. Um, it's hot, quietly heartbreaking in many respects, and then just subtly heartwarming from how well it does these characters. I, I really need to find time to be able to go and watch this again, because I adore this movie, um, in spite of any of its flaws, and I talk for way too long. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that really um, says everything we need to, to know about Big Hero 6 um, and more or less brings a close to um, to the majority of the podcast Join me next week week when I review when I spend 25 minutes talking about Sean Machine the movie <laughs> uh-huh, exactly <laughs> uh-huh. and then when I just get crashed the podcast in two weeks and spend an hour talking about Peppa Pig at the quest of the Golden Boots <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to say by the way uh, but anyway, uh, recommendations for the week ahead. Uh, I'm going to go with Netflix uh, UK and all five seasons of Community, the uh, sitcom, have just gone on there. Very good, very funny, uh, meta, I think is the word, sitcom. Um, James is a big fan, I'm a big fan. Worth watching. But it, was, it, it, it was shown on UK TV, wasn't it? But it was on like some obscure... Sony so, TV channel? Sony, yeah, Sony TV. Yeah. So I never... I, I mean, I watched half of one episode, and I, it was like midway through one of the later seasons, and I just thought it wasn't for me. But I, I am interested to go back and watch from the beginning, so I've heard okay. everyone yeah. who's, who's seen it seems to love it. So first, The first season aired on Viva, and then it disappeared. So. <laughs> well, Viva disappeared, I think, but... Or could we, that, that's we a shame. Still... They used to show Dario repeats. <laughs> wow. Um, but yeah, sorry, what are you telling people to watch? Um, there's a few Werner Herzog films on Film 4. 
um, next week. But also, I want to just pick another one, um, because I don't think this film gets enough love, really. Uh, on film four, on Friday evening slash Saturday morning, so 1.15am, um, is The Last Detail, which is a Jack Nicholson film, where he play- he and Otis Young play two Navy officers escorting uh, Randy Quaid, who's play- playing a character called Meadows, to... Uh, he's got one last night of freedom before he's incarcerated. And it's really a, a very uplifting brilliant 70s Jack Nicholson film that's that sort of goes a bit underrated, I think, because people always think of, um, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Easy Rider and all those sort of things from his early career. This this is this is fantastic. The last detail is cool. Okay. And Callum? Um, well, out on DVD this week is Gone Girl, obviously. My film last year. Everybody should get it. Um, Frank has just been added to Netflix. Um, and everybody should see Frank. Frank is great. My specific recommendation is out on Blu-ray, and I think also being issued on DVD as well, but on Blu-ray this week, Satoshi Khan's Perfect Blue. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, 1997, I believe, um, Japanese anime psychological thriller mm. about a sort about a middling famous idol singer who wishes to make a trans sort of wishes, again, this is all part of here, to make the transition into becoming a respected actress by taking a role on a, on a um, dark, gritty cop drama show. And then everything starts going to hell. It is dark, it is terrifying, it does amazing things with blending, with blending what might be reality and hallucination. Um, Satoshi Khan's direction is fantastic. It's a bit trashy, and it is very, very much in the vein of Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. Coincidentally, Aronofsky used, cites it as a key inspiration for Black Swan. So, um, yeah, ev- and everybody should see it. It is an amazing, amazing um, film. Okay, so yes, that really is all for this week's podcast. Uh, so thanks to everyone who's listened and contributed to it in any way, shape, or form. And in the meantime, you can go to our website, www.failcritics.com, and read anything that's been put up on there. Plenty going up from both Callum and Owen, uh, and all worth a read. And we'll be back around the same time next week with another podcast. Speaking of other podcasts, before we sign off, can I just say, I've been on a podcast this week um, called, uh, it's the Not This Again podcast, at NTA podcast uh, on Twitter. Uh, or notthisagain.co.uk talking about the Oscars it was good fun with both Jack and Chris and so yeah have a listen to that it it was a lot of fun and their podcast is pretty interesting they interview different people on a sort of bi-weekly basis um, I think so yeah give that a listen it's very good and Callum I know you you haven't got a podcast as such but you're online elsewhere Yes, speaking of now elongating this podcast much longer than necessary, <laughs> um, my blog specifically, you can listen to my weekly university radio, whole university radio show, Screen One, every Monday, 9pm, um, British Standard Time, with myself and my co-host, Lucy Mia, where we go through week's film news, film releases, stuff you might miss, and basically just fill time for an hour talking about movies before we get, before essentially we get politely but firmly asked to leave by the station's janitor. So... <laughs> Like you laugh, you laugh. That's genuinely a thing that's happened multiple times because neither of us can 
like, now we can just rein ourselves in. Maybe it's like we're getting to a flow, and we'll sort of look up and see, oh crap, that's the time. Um, I don't believe you, Caleb. Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anybody who's listened to this podcast, this episode, <laughs> no, I am concise to the point. Um, you know, you can also follow myself on Twitter at Callum Hatch. And also, I promise you, the DreamWorks retrospective is not on another sudden hiatus. I just got bodged this week with Madagascar 3. It should be up by now, like by the time this podcast goes up. So, yeah, there. Okay, so yes, that really is all <laughs> from us for this week. Uh, and join us next week for another Failed Critics podcast. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.